seated. Well, we are studying together the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, we're going to John chapter 20. The Lord is risen. He has just uh, appeared to his disciples. In fact, I'll back up just a few verses and read as he appears in the upper room to them, starting in verse um, 19. We'll pick up reading. But we're going to be considering particularly this matter of the second Sunday when he comes and visits with them and appears particularly now to Thomas. But uh, picking up in John 20, verse 19, we uh, read together, Then the same day, that is that uh, first Resurrection Sunday, at evening, being the first day of the week, When the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his hands. Uh, the print of his nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would seal this very blessing to our hearts, that you would encourage us as those who yet must walk in the way of faith that is not sight at this time, looking yet ahead to things unseen. We pray that uh, you would, by that same power of Christ who meets with us in um, an unseen but a very real way. We pray that he would stir up that faith within us, that we would know his purpose and his presence in our lives through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, following Jesus often begins simply enough for us. We believe the good news and those early days of new life, well, for so many of us, feel light and free. But as life marches on, we do face new challenges, new difficulties, uh, 
questions about the Bible or about the church or about our own experience leave us perplexed and doubting. Have you ever struggled with the love of God or the justice of God or even the existence of God, perhaps because of what's happened in your life? Do you know what it's like when God feels very far away? And do you know what it's like to be disappointed with God? Have you had your doubts? If so, the sermon is for you, and I will tell you right up front that you are in very good company, because all through the Bible, God gives us a great many examples of the greatest saints struggling with doubts. Gideon, that mighty deliverer and judge of Israel, said to the Lord when he appeared to him, look, if the Lord is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? He spoke that day for all of us at some time. In doubt, discouragement, and disappointment, we find the godly Job. There was not a man like him on the earth. Nevertheless, in extremity, perplexity, questioning God for afflicting him, asking him questions that even seem to challenge God to appear and to give some account of what was going on. Many times we find David and others, as we just sang, wrestling with doubt, perplexed, feeling absolutely abandoned. Why do you stand afar off, O God? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? Asaph, wondering if if maybe the godly even have it better off than the people of God, the ungodly rather have it better off than the people of God. Doubting Christians, I say today, find themselves in very good company. The Bible reminds us that doubt is almost a universal feature of the Christian life. In one sense, doubt is just the gap that exists between the life that you and I are living and the life that we would be living if we did live according to the confidence in God's word that we know that we should have. That gap is doubt, and it's a painful, yawning gap. Doubt is a very personal thing. Some struggle with it in this way, and some in that. Some it seems, struggle relatively little, others to the death. Now, the Christian life, as we know, is a life of faith, right? It begins in faith. It is a life that is based on that faith, that is based upon our confidence in God and that certain things are true. Last Sunday evening, we read that to have faith is to believe that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So, obviously, to believe is to receive uh, the truth of God, the Word of God, and to receive Christ as He is offered in that Word, to hold fast to Him, and, and so on. Faith is, in all these ways, the, the confidence that we are placing in God, and therefore our readiness to live according to that confidence. Faith is the great principle and engine of the Christian life, right? The life that I live in the body, you know the verse, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The principle of the Christian life is faith. 
And you'd therefore expect that when we came to Christ by faith, that all of our troubles would be over, that everything faith-wise would be settled, that this is the victory that overcomes the world, right? Even our faith. But as you know, even though we have that victory, we don't live in unbroken victory. In the Bible and in our experience, there are countless things that trouble us, that weaken our faith, that distract it. We, we might have thought that faith being so central would be presented in the Bible as a sure thing, that once we had it, it would govern our hearts. But in the Bible, we are assured that it is a struggle, and it will be so, more or less, for every believer. Though perhaps not the greatest doubter in the Bible, Thomas is certainly the most famous doubter. And I'd like to look at his story, at his pilgrimage from doubt to worship. And I'll consider the passage that I read before you, just those short verses from 24 to 29, under three parts. Missing Thomas, doubting Thomas, and worshiping Thomas. That'll be our three-part outline for today. Missing, doubting, worshiping. Let's go on the journey with him. First, missing Thomas. In verses 20, uh, not, excuse me, 19 through 23, where I began, they record that first Sunday morning, uh, excuse me, the Sunday evening of the day that Jesus rose from the dead. On that first resurrection Sunday, Jesus came through locked doors into the room where the disciples were assembled. And then starting on the day of his resurrection, Jesus began to meet with his disciples every Sunday. Interesting. Uh, you see how the point was made again on the first day of the week, uh, at the beginning of the passage and then again in the second. And so Sunday becomes the day of Christian worship, also called in the New Testament the Lord's Day. When John writes in verse 26 that after eight days the disciples were inside, he's using the Jewish method of reckoning in which you count the day that you are in as well. And so, just to point out to you, the beginning of the worship on the first day of the week is here before us when the Lord himself meets with his assembled disciples, when they worship before him, confessing him as Lord and God, and when he blesses them. Interesting Sunday to Sunday. Well, the last time we were together in the Gospel of John, we considered the events of that glorious Sunday, that most important Sunday ever in their lives, and in all their fear and uncertainty and doubt, Jesus came to them and he revealed himself to them as being alive from the dead. And we read in verse 20 that, that they were glad when they saw the Lord. That is, they rejoiced, some of you had. Everything changed in that moment. But on that wonderful evening, that evening of extraordinary blessing and joy and victory, uh, Thomas was absent. He was missing. We, we don't know why. Uh, I'm sure he had some other important responsibilities. I'm not blaming him. But the simple fact that I'm pointing out to you is because he was not there, Thomas did not rejoice as they did. He did not receive the blessing that the other disciples did. He missed out. And he became doubting Thomas because he was first missing Thomas. I don't want to make too big a point of that, but something similar is happening all over the world, of course, today. That in churches all over the world, 
where two or three are gathered in his name, Jesus is meeting with his assembled people on the first day of the week in a spiritual and yet a very significant way. And your spiritual well-being and mine is tied up with this gathering together to come before him. Now, things come up. People certainly have sickness, business, unavoidable responsibilities, like Thomas no doubt did. However, my point is, it does have a negative effect on us. I mean, if I was ever sick on Sunday, I find that the, the whole week feels different. Um, life feels heavy, the spirit sinks. That is why the scriptures warn us as discouraged believers in the letters to the Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some. We are blessed when we come together in God's worship with God's people on God's day. We are to make it the priority that it truly is and make it so in our lives. I'm not much impressed by large numbers of people attending church, but I am impressed with hearts who plainly desire to meet together and to worship God. And I am concerned about the spiritual well-being of everyone here and of everyone not here. So take note. He was doubting Thomas because he was first missing Thomas. Jesus was there. He was meeting with his people to strengthen and bless and encourage the faith of his disciples. And blessed are we when we are receiving that same blessing. Okay, well, missing Thomas is how we begin, but let's come more importantly at a greater length now to doubting Thomas, surely the most important thing in the passage. In verse 25, the other disciples tell Thomas, we've seen the Lord, but Thomas responds with a strange, strong skepticism. Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He apparently maintains that attitude for a week. A week passes. But Thomas is sure to be there the next Sunday. (laughs) And, And Jesus meets with him again and gives Thomas exactly what he had asked for. Verse 27, he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And uh, Thomas, much, much abashed, no doubt, says to him, my Lord and my God, realizing, of course, that Jesus said the very thing that he had said the previous week. Uh, Jesus then says to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What does that mean? Well, I'd like you all, please, to understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus certainly did not expect Thomas to believe without evidence. Jesus did not expect, does not expect any of us to believe without evidence. Jesus gives his blessing on those who have believed without seeing and that's very different. Let me, let me explain. There are two big reasons that you and I believe anything. Um, first, we can witness something ourselves. Someone once asked me if I believed in infant baptism. Believe in it? I've seen it. Hmm. Well, 
sorry if that's a sore point for somebody. Uh, one, one reason that we believe in something is that we've seen it. Um, I'm convinced that my wife is an excellent driver because I've seen her drive for many, many miles. In fact, one time I saw her deftly avoid an accident several years ago when an oncoming car swerved into our lane and she handled it so well, I was encouraged, I feel safe when she is at the wheel. One reason that we believe anything is, something is true is that we've seen it. But there's another reason that you and I believe things, of course, and most of what we believe about the world comes to us in this way. The other reason we believe something is if credible witnesses, or even better, a great many credible witnesses tell us something is true, right? It happens every day. It happens on the news. We don't think that they're necessarily credible as much as we used to, but we do generally believe the people on the news. It happens every day in countless classrooms. As people tell others things that they believe. It obviously happens in the courts. This is the basis of our legal system. You can bring physical, physical evidence into courts, into the court, and that's called secondary evidence. Physical evidence is called secondary evidence. Um, Your Honor, let Colonel Mustard's gun be entered as Exhibit A. You can bring evidence into court, secondary evidence. But most evidence at court is what's called primary evidence, that is, the testimony of witnesses. And when two or three witnesses come together to report something that they've seen, they are credible judged to be credible witness, this is conclusive evidence in our courts. People go to the electric chair in Virginia on the basis of credible witnesses. Our faith regarding most things in history and world events depends upon credible witnesses. And this is where Thomas was wrong. Thomas refused to believe the testimony, think of it, of uh, 10 of his closest friends and colleagues, not to mention others. And, and this is why Thomas draws a mild rebuke. Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is not blessing irrational faith, as the atheists today will say, well, yeah, faith is just believing without evidence. <laughs> not at all. Jesus is blessing people who believe on the, on the basis of abundant, primary, eyewitness evidence. And this is the way that the good news is preached from this day on, Acts 2. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, right? We've all seen it. Acts 4, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and so forth. We often talk about evangelism as witnessing today, and, that, and that's okay, but it did have a special meaning in the book of Acts, it means literally being a witness to what they had seen and heard. Christ was risen. And that witness was given time and time again by many credible people. When Paul had to defend the gospel against some at Corinth who were saying that there was no resurrection, his, his chief argument is, look, we are witnesses. He writes to the Corinthians just a few years later after all these events and says, look, he, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. And after this, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. 
And after this, he was seen by James and by all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen by me also. I mean, just, just the 500. If you take 500 people and put them on the witness stand and cross-examine, cross-examine them for just 20 minutes apiece, it would take you over a month to hear their testimony. I wonder how many courts in America would dismiss 500 people and a solid month of eyewitness testimony. Some critics have said that all these people were just hallucinating, but one psychologist pointed out that if you had 500 people all with the same hallucination at the same time, that would be a greater miracle than the resurrection, right? Jesus appears time and time again, as Paul points out, to hundreds of witnesses in a variety of ways. He appears in the nighttime, in the daytime, at mealtime, outside, inside, in the mountains, on the plains, at the beach, in the upper room, in public and in private. He eats with them. He has them feel the scars in his hand and his side. These then become the biblical authors. These take the word of God throughout the world in various ways as his witnesses, with the exception of Luke, who says at the beginning that that he is set about to record the testimony of many eyewitnesses for us. So here's the point. Thomas should have believed the overwhelming testimony of so many credible witnesses. In fact, those same apostles also say that Jesus was raised according to the Scriptures, calling the prophets to join them in bearing witness. Faith is not against reason. Unbelief in the face of so many witnesses. That is contrary to reason. Okay. Well, how about you? Do you believe the eyewitness testimony? Don't dismiss so many authors and preachers who've written our word because, well, they're in the Bible. Can you imagine somebody in trial saying, Your Honor, we can't have any of these witnesses testify because they saw what happened and they believe it's true. We need impartial witnesses here. That's not the way it works, right? No one would say that. You say, well, maybe the disciples hoped to get rich. Ha! Declaring that Jesus was the risen Lord gave them no worldly advantages at all. And in fact, just the opposite. They suffered the loss of all things and life itself. Uh, Paul lost his position as a ruler of the nation the day that he met the risen Lord and started to preach the faith that he once tried to destroy, he later lost his head for his trouble, and he was better off than most of the others because all but one of the men in the upper room sealed their testimony with their blood in the most despicable ways. One writer summarizes the history as was handed down through the ancient church, quote, the annals of military warfare could scarcely have afford an example of the like heroic constancy, patience, and unflinching courage of these disciples. They had every possible motive to review carefully the grounds of their faith and the evidences of the great facts and truth that they asserted. But of course, despite all their sufferings and martyrdoms, uh, some of which are recorded in the Bible itself, Unable to recant, they die the most gruesome methods of torture ever devised by man. And it's at this very time that the Greek word for being a witness, martyreo, takes on a whole new meaning, being a martyr. 
So do not dismiss the testimony of so many men with nothing to gain but martyrdom. People today do not lack evidence. There's no lack of evidence, of credible eyewitness testimony. What we lack today are people that say, I want to know the truth. And even if it doesn't help me at all, I want to know what's real. You say that and you will find the truth and the truth will set you free, even if it didn't help you any more than it helped them. But it's true. We have missing Thomas. We have doubting Thomas. But finally in the passage, we have worshiping Thomas. As Thomas now responds at the end in worship, we in verse 27 uh, read Jesus saying, Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And when he believes, that is when it dawns on him that Jesus truly is risen from the dead, all he can do is worship him and say, My Lord and my God. So, interesting, uh, Jesus tells him to be believing, and he responds in language of worship, right? Because faith is not just knowing in your mind that certain facts are true. Even the devil believes those facts. Thomas has real faith, and the true faith brings us to Jesus in worship. Uh, My Lord and my God, surrendering his whole life as he does to him. When the Lord reveals himself to you, when you realize at last who you are and who he is, it brings you not just to faith, it brings you to your knees in worship. And this is the place that still we find our challenge today. That is to say, you and I do believe. But, but what dull hearts we have. We do believe, and yet we also find worship and surrender to Christ as Lord and God a daily struggle. And that's the weakness of our faith. That's the littleness of our faith, as Jesus puts it. Um, Some of you became believers at an early age. Others uh, later, perhaps through the testimony of friends or family, that is good and right. But we all find, as we get older in the Lord, that our faith is tested through trials and temptations and questions. And let's face it, uh, sin absolutely weakens worship and faith itself. A life of sin cannot exist with a life of worship and praise and joy in the Lord. Uh, Faith itself must suffer. And this is important because most all of us will go through some seasons of doubt And some people you might know use their time of doubt as an opportunity to plunge into sinful desires. But be warned, you will find it very hard indeed to resolve things and to draw near to the Lord and His Word and His people and find answers with such a hardened heart. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Sin demands to have a man by himself. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It's hard to resolve things that way. So do not make doubts an excuse. But just as our physical bodies are strengthened by nourishment and exercise, 
so we need to strengthen our faith by exercise. The Psalms are a great help, especially in times of disappointment and suffering and discouragement and doubt. Don't leave off God's word in prayer or worship. You remember how in Psalm 73, Asaph has doubts that nearly overwhelmed him, but they were resolved when he at last went into the sanctuary and there met the Lord. And what a time of strengthening there was for him then. I read a recent survey in which 53% of people, of Christians, just over half of self-identified Christians said that their faith became stronger as the result of their experience with doubt. I, I, I think that's true for everyone who has doubted and had their doubts resolved. With God and with others, when you struggle, almost everyone has doubts, or has had doubts, and has learned through them. And God uses such things for our good and strengthening in His time. Here in the chapter, we read of the compassion of Christ to His servant Thomas. True, there was a week of waiting, but giving Him at last what He needed. We also, who have been Christians for some time, have found the Lord faithful again and again, even though we have had to wrestle through times of despair. So do not be ashamed to voice your doubts and disappointments to God and to others. Press on in worship and in walking with the Lord. And if you weather doubt, if you weather your disillusionment with God and with His people, you will discover the unexpected gratitude that Charles Spurgeon wrote about. Spurgeon said, I thank God for every storm that wrecked me upon the rock of Jesus Christ. I thank God for every storm that wrecked me upon the rock of Jesus Christ. We, we don't like the storms, but when we are at last cast upon the rock of Jesus and find Him strong and steady under our feet, we can thank the Lord even for the storm. Well, in conclusion, you know that we are living through an age, a, 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 a a world of doubt and deconstruction that does affect the faith of many, inside and outside. I do want to leave you with a letter written by an intelligent 17-year-old teenager, a student, to his friend. This letter will not sound encouraging to you at first, but, but bear with me. This uh, young man writes... You ask me my religious views. You know, I think, that I believe in no religion. There is absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. All religions, that is, all mythologies, to give them their proper name, are merely man's own invention. Christ as much as Loki. Superstition, of course, in every age has held the common people, but in every age, the educated and thinking ones have stood outside it, though usually outwardly conceded to it for convenience. Of course, mind you, I'm not saying with certainty that there is nothing outside the material world, considering the discoveries that are always being made. That would be foolish. Whenever there is any new light that we can get on such matters, I will be glad to welcome it, but in the meantime, I am not going back 
to the bondage of believing in any old and already decaying superstition. End quote. That biting letter could have been written by a great many people today who feel intellectually and morally superior to Christians. But it's interesting that that particular letter that I read to you was written by a teenage C.S. Lewis. And that is to be an encouragement today to us because, you know, today's Saul of Tarsus persecuting the church to death. Maybe tomorrow is Paul the Apostle bringing it to all nations. Telling others the good news in today's doubting world can well feel impossible, and it is impossible if it depends upon us. But our confidence is in our sovereign God, who stopped Saul that day, appeared to him, and set him on the right road. Our confidence is in God, who changes the heart and not in ourselves and in our poor testimony. You will testify, Jesus told them, and the Holy Spirit will also testify, and nothing is impossible for God. So I'll leave you with this. I'll leave you parent. I'll leave you friend, co-worker of someone who expresses those very doubts. Be encouraged by the words of our God. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. That is our confidence in a time of doubt. Let us pray. Great and almighty God, you who nevertheless, uh, despite all the raging of the world, all the bleating of the skeptics and the um, raging of persecutions who established the truth of Christ from nation to nation, we pray that you would shine upon us by that same word, that we might not be as people blind at midday, nor, God forbid, seeking darkness and lulling our minds asleep. We pray that you would strengthen our weak faith, help our unbelief, bless our worship, that we might truly live before you as our Lord and our God. Abide with us, we pray, and do not allow the doubts of our hearts to overcome us. Gather all that remains in us and strengthen it, that you might bring us at last, we pray, to your heavenly home, where there is truly reserved for us an eternal rest and glory through a faithful Savior, even our Lord Jesus Christ.